Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> Hi, this is Stephen Nill, CEO of CharityChannel.com. So, you want your charity to succeed. You came to the right place. Integration of online and offline techniques is the key to your successful fundraising, and practical advice on going green is what you need. With this show, The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, you will learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Our host is Ted Hart, one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. This year, he is celebrating 25 years in the nonprofit sector and the 10-year anniversary of his firm, TedHart.com. His books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. His guests are leaders in their field who will share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management, green strategy, and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, here's Ted. And good afternoon and welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach. This is Ted Hart coming to you live from the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As always here on the Nonprofit Coach, you have the opportunity to call in when we get to our page two expert by dialing 347 Three two four three zero eight zero. You can also join us over in the chat room, and I see folks starting to arrive uh, over in the chat room. Remember, uh, you can ask questions in the chat room, or just email me at tedhart at tedhart.com. Our page two expert today is someone I'm very excited to have the opportunity to chat with today. Joshua Burkholz uh, is our expert, and I'll be introducing to you uh, in a little bit, but uh, uh, most important thing for you to understand is all the questions that you have about data, data mining, major gift fundraising, data mining, and plan giving uh, data mining is uh, our topic today, and Joshua Burkholz is one of this country's foremost experts in that area. But here on The Nonprofit Coach, as always, we always start the show with page one news. This is the third Tuesday of the month, and what that means is that this is also AFP Wiley Radio Show today, and Joshua Burkholz, who is our page two expert, is not only an author, but his book has been accepted into the AFP Wiley Fund Development Series, and so our author uh, today will be giving away a copy of his book to one lucky caller. So make sure that you do dial in today at 347-324-3080, and that book is a gift of John Wiley and Sons. But first up here on the Nonprofit Coach, uh, we have our news, and uh, as always, you can uh, find the radio links over at tedhartradio.com, and you'll find a link there that for the first time, this is news, for the first time, more people are getting news online than from newspapers. Now, that's not so surprising uh, in that most of us do use the Internet, but to actually have the statistics uh, from this particular study that just came out, that at the end of 2010, more people get their news from the Internet than from newspapers, and more ad dollars went to online outlets than to newspapers. Uh, one of the, uh, the lines that I use in uh, my lectures when I'm talking about uh, social media and online success is I ask people if they remember newspapers, and I'm, I think that may be a question we'll all be asking uh, younger people in uh, in the future. Of course, 18 to 29-year-old group overwhelmingly cast their vote for the web. 
65% said the Internet was their main source for news. Uh, so certainly, again, wave of the future starting to come uh, to the Internet here, and nonprofits need to be paying attention. Next up here on the Nonprofit Coach, uh, you will also see uh, that we uh, have information about uh, Twitter. Uh, Twitter is, of course, one of the applications that we urge nonprofits to be familiar with and to be using. Uh, and But only 58% of tweets uh, from this particular report that just came out moments ago uh, are from official Twitter applications. Uh, as a matter of fact, Twitter itself only accounts for 35% of all tweets coming through Twitter.com. Now, of course, our, our uh, uh, favorite uh, additional application here on the Nonprofit Coach is Hootsuite.com, uh, and uh, we continue to uh, urge our nonprofits to manage their Twitter uh, feeds through Hootsuite.com. Uh, but uh, in this particular study, uh, uh, TweetDeck, uh, which is one that I'm familiar with, although I do find it to be a bit of a, a memory hog, uh, and that's why I switched over to Hootsuite. Uh, .com. But there are lots of uh, server, uh, uh, lots of applications that are out there. The largest ones uh, right now, according to the study, uh, are TweetDeck uh, Twitter feed. Uh, but uh, we are big fans of Hootsuite.com here on the Nonprofit Coach. Now, don't forget uh, that you will have the opportunity to dial in and ask a question uh, of our page one, uh, page two expert today, Joshua Burkholz, by dialing three four seven. 3243080. Now I've got uh, a, a friend. I think I've got uh, uh, the uh, opportunity here to uh, to bring Terry Fink onto the show today. Uh, but before I uh, ask uh, Mr. Fink to uh, uh, share his insights into um, the uh, the use of uh, uh, the the program that he's currently involved with, uh, which is the Pepsi Refresh Project. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of an introduction to that project, and then we'll learn from Mr. Fink what his organization is doing specifically. Welcome to the Pepsi Refresh Project. This year we're giving millions to fund ideas that will refresh the world. Your ideas, voted on by the public. Here's how it works. Submit your ideas at RefreshEverything.com for a chance to win a Pepsi Refresh Grant. Ideas can be submitted in six categories. Health and fitness, arts and culture, neighborhoods, the planet, education, food and shelter. Vote for ideas you care about at RefreshEverything.com and help them become a reality. Everyone can vote for up to ten ideas each day. Help promote good ideas using our Facebook and Twitter tools. The ideas with the most votes will receive a Pepsi Refresh Grant to make them happen. So could a soda really make the world a better place? With your help, it will. What do you care about? Join the Pepsi Refresh Project. Thousands of ideas, millions in grants. Every Pepsi refreshes the world. One love, one blood, one people. So that is the Pepsi Refresh Project, and I believe I have uh, Terry Fink, who is the Director of Cultural and Recreational Services for the Town of LaSalle in Canada. Mr. Fink, are you here with us on the Nonprofit Coach? Yes, Ted, I'm here. Hello, Mr. Fink. Great to have you here on the show, and thank you for bringing to our attention and that of all of our listeners uh, the project uh, called the Pepsi Refresh Project, which we have actually followed for some time on this show. Uh, but you're the, the first person uh, who is calling in specifically to share with us your plan for your organization, and I understand that you are uh, looking to hopefully be awarded $100,000 from the Pepsi Refresh Project. Tell us all about your project and why you decided to go this route. Well, the, the project is to build an accessible playground at our Vollmer Culture and Recreation Complex. And, Ted, the idea for leadership came from a grade 12 student at one of our local high schools who emailed one of our counselors and saying that she wanted uh, to take on this challenge of building an accessible playground and wondered how she could do it. I got involved through council. We met with, uh, with Erica, the young uh, student who wanted to provide the leadership to this, and at the same time we were investigating 
funding sources, and the Pepsi Refresh uh, Challenge Program was was right there for us to take advantage of. So we immediately uh, worked with Erica. We we jointly wrote the application and submitted it to the Pepsi Refresh uh, uh, Program. Uh, we waited until March the 1st. They indicated that that application was accepted, and now we're into a competition for voting um, on this project. It is $100,000, and so there is only one prize. The, the winning group gets the $100,000 for their project. And the way that it, it operates is that you have to solicit people to vote for your project every day between March the 1st and April 30th. And at the conclusion of April 30th, the, the file that has the most votes wins the $100,000. So we are in all of our contacts through computer and everything to get people um, encouraged to understand what the Pepsi Refresh program is and then how they then um, log in and vote every day for our project. So it's very competitive, very interesting, but it's all computer generated. And this, of course, is important, and we'll be adding a link to the radio links at tedhartradio.com. Uh, folks, our listeners, you can go to refresheverything.ca, and you'll be able to find the town of LaSalle uh, for the Accessible Playground Project. And uh, right now you're not doing too bad, given the fact that uh, now you said voting goes through April 30th? That's correct, yes. And okay, so, so you've still got time, but you're ranked 16th. Uh, right now in the 100K category, uh, and, and that means that there are a lot of folks behind you uh, and not quite as many ahead of you, so you've, uh, you certainly need as much help as you can get. Uh, what are your plans to get the word out uh, besides coming here on the show for the Nonprofit Coach? Well, what we've done is um, there's a whole team of us who have sent emails out um, to all of our contacts, uh, encouraging them to vote and showing them how easy it is. We are then having um, uh, at the Vollmer, uh, there we've got all kinds of posters up, and then as we have our Junior B, the Vipers play, when we have up to 1,400 people attending that, um, we're encouraging those people to vote by having stations with, uh, again, Erica and the students right there so that people can come right over, uh, sign in and vote and get them into that pattern of voting. We're just in the midst of organizing. We hope to have 1,000 people show up um, in the first week of April at the Vollmer with their computers to have one of the largest Essex County um, events where people are bringing their laptops and voting all at once. So we're encouraging our community to do that. And then through Erica is reaching out to all of our students uh, at uh, all of our high schools in the town of LaSalle to constantly be voting. Now, Ted, it, it, you know, it's such a community that we also have in another category, one of our public schools is wanting to build an outdoor nature center, so an outdoor classroom. So that is also on the books, and we're encouraging people to not only vote for the accessible playground, but to go under the other category of education is to vote for the outdoor classroom that they're wanting. So it's a, you know what we're doing in LaSalle is we've got two major projects going under the banner of LaSalle and we're encouraging people to utilize their 10 votes and certainly vote for the accessible playground and then under education is to vote for the LaSalle outdoor, uh, pro outdoor classroom. Well, we've been big fans here on uh, on the uh, nonprofit coach of the Pepsi Refresh Project. We we certainly appreciate the opportunity for uh, organizations such as yours to bring their community together uh, and to raise much needed dollars. Uh, I'm particularly impressed that this idea came from a 12 year old uh, in your community, and that the leadership uh, of LaSalle decided to support that initiative. Uh, because uh, certainly we believe that uh, philanthropy and the future of philanthropy is the hand, in the hands of our children, and you are certainly showing that there. So I love this idea of uh, having sort of a, a vote-in. Uh, when is the, uh, the vote-in taking place in LaSalle? Um, we haven't got the exact date. We're just we're I'm really an announcing it for the first time, um, but we're looking at that first week of April on the likely on the first Friday uh, beyond Easter though to actually um, to to do it. So we're looking somewhere around the the eighth or the fifteenth, and we're just looking. Okay. 
Well, we encourage people to come here on the Nonprofit Coach and make news, and so you're making news today uh, with the announcement of your intention to organize a vote-in for the Pepsi Refresh Projects in LaSalle. Uh, and uh, we appreciate all of our listeners up in Canada. Uh, but uh, uh, people can vote for you wherever they may be, right? They don't have to be Canadian to vote for your project? They do have to be in Canada to vote for a Canadian project. Um, oh, okay. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so that that's a little bit of news, different news than what I provided in my email to you. So that we that's okay. That's all right. We have a lot of Canadian listeners, uh, yeah. and uh, we certainly uh, appreciate uh, uh, all the folks in uh, Canada uh, considering this project. There are lots of good projects, so this is a good reminder for all of our listeners to find a project of their choice in whichever country they may be in. Uh, but okay. if you happen to be in Canada, please go to uh, the radio links today. Uh, we do. Our crack team here does already have the link up for you. Uh, uh, over at uh, tedhartradio.com, uh, so you can go directly there for refresheverything.ca and vote for the good folks in LaSalle. Greatly appreciate it, Ted. And, and you know, we must give a plug, too, that uh, for the Pepsi Refresh for our American uh, colleagues, too, that that webpage is there to take a look at what they can do in the U.S. For, with partnering with Pepsi Refresh. Absolutely, absolutely. Terry Fink, thank you so much for being a listener, and thank you for bringing this project to us in such a very personal way uh, here on the Nonprofit Coach today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ted. All right, back here on uh, page one news, uh, you'll find over in the radio links at tedhartradio.com a really excellent, excellent piece over from social media today. You'll find the seven levels of social media engagement. Of course, uh, for uh, Terry and the fine folks up in uh, Canada, they are looking to uh, deepen that engagement. And what I really like about this uh, this article that uh, has uh, been placed here uh, on social media today uh, is that it really spells out the step-by-step stages that charities can go through, and it ends exactly where we have always said charities need to end, and that is with people-to-people fundraising. In this particular case, they refer to that as stage seven, people-powered social media, and that's what truly works for online fundraising. And there are several steps that a lot of charities need to go through, and many of you may be thinking, well, that's where we are right now. Uh, Stage one, or stage zero, actually, uh, is what is social media? Well, I think if you're listening here to the Nonprofit Coach, I'm hoping that we've helped you at least answer that question. But as you go through step one, step two, step three, moving from is it a waste of time? Uh, Is it something where we're just confused? Is it something where it's just outbound communication and working your way through to truly understand that it's two-way communication and that, in fact, moving to stage seven uh, is exactly where you need to be. So thank you to the folks uh, over at uh, socialmediatoday.com and, in particular, Laurel Papworth, uh, who posted this particular article. Well, well done and worth the read of all of the listeners of the Nonprofit Coach. And you'll find that at tedhartradio.com. Just click on the radio links. Next up here on page one news uh, is from Marketing Sherpa. This is a a very well-done case study that helps you understand how driving traffic from print to the web. 50% increase in website traffic in six months for this particular organization. And I took um, real interest in uh, this particular um, uh, article by David Kirkpatrick uh, over at MarketingSherpa.com because it is specifically targeted towards uh, coffee news. And I don't know if you're familiar with the coffee news. I've become familiar with that because it is a small little fun, easy-to-read newsletter uh, that is uh, I can pick up at my local diner. And my son and I go there for breakfast, and it's just a habit of ours uh, to read the coffee news. Well, they have been engaged in a very active campaign to try to build web traffic. Uh, and you will be able to read the tactics that they have taken. But one of the ones that has come to my uh, notice uh, each time I read is the use of contests 
to drive web traffic. Uh, so certainly read through uh, how they've managed to do this. They're not even giving away that much money, uh, but they have had tremendous success uh, in their contests. And of course, right here on the Nonprofit Coach, uh, we certainly, uh, by giving away books that are sponsored by various organizations, uh, by having giveaways of certain types uh, here on the show, that certainly does increase the fun and interest that people have in listening to the Nonprofit Coach. Read all about it over at Ted Hart Radio. Com. Next up here on page one news uh, is uh, just information that Twitter's, uh, one of Twitter's founders, uh, Biz Stone, has now been hired by AOL uh, to advise them on charity efforts. And we certainly can't expect, I believe, that for uh, his becoming a strategic impact advisor uh, for charitable efforts that there is going to be a lot of movement uh, in this new combined group of AOL and Huffington Post to draw more attention to charitable efforts. Uh, read all about that from PC Magazine over at tedhartradio.com. Now, many of us right now have our hearts and minds turned to the tragedy in Japan. Uh, and certainly with the after effects of the earthquake and the Pacific tsunami, many of us are looking for ways to support uh, those in need. And we thought we would add to the radio links today just an additional uh, fun, interesting way to make sure that you are doing something to support those uh, in need. And that is our good friends over at Cafe Press uh, have a really nicely designed T-shirt that you can purchase for just $15. And this is a special edition T-shirt that will benefit the American Red Cross and specifically their efforts to help those in need in Japan in the wake of the earthquake and Pacific tsunami. And $10 uh, from every, every T-shirt that is purchased uh, through March 31st will go to the American Red Cross Japan effort. Uh, so if you haven't given already and you're looking for an interesting way to do so, go over to the radio links today and consider purchasing a t-shirt from Cafe Press. So that's what we have here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, page one. And without any uh, further delay, I want to make sure that we get right to page two and our page two expert. Our page two expert today is Joshua Burkholz. Joshua uh, Burkholz is a principal at the firm of Benz Whaley Flessner, where he oversees consulting services in development operations and the analytics division donor cast. He has built data mining programs and ushered organizational change for leading nonprofits in higher education, healthcare, the arts, advocacy, and social service sector throughout the United States and around the world. His thought leadership in creative data-driven strategies for fundraising is evident in his many speaking engagements and published works. And most notably, and a topic for today here on The Nonprofit Coach, is Fundraising Analytics, an excellent book uh, that I have right here in my hands. Uh, I have wanted to get uh, Joshua on the show for quite some time because I consider this book a must-read. And what we're going to be talking about today is a continuation of the dialogue that we've had on this show, and that is that I urge our listeners to be smart about fundraising, to be data-driven about fundraising, and to no longer just do hope for fundraising. And Joshua Burkholz is here today to tell us how we can be smart about fundraising. Welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach, Joshua Burkholz. Thank you so much, Ted. It's my pleasure to be here, and, and let me say thank you for your contribution to to our nonprofit community. It's greatly appreciated on our end. Well, you're very kind to uh, to say that, and I have to say I am not at all surprised that uh, your book is part of the AFP Wiley Fund Development Series. This is absolutely excellent, and uh, if you've been listening here uh, to the nonprofit coaches, I know that you have. Uh, we are big fans of data-driven uh, fundraising. Uh, so tell us all about why you wrote this book and give us just a, a little bit of a synopsis of what makes this a different approach to fundraising than perhaps the average charity engages today. 
Sure, sure. You know, really my goal was first and foremost just to increase the use and adoption of predictive analytics in the nonprofit world. You know, I I believe in the science, you know, it's part of me, I'm passionate about it, and I know for a fact that this can help nonprofits raise money more effectively and more efficiently, which is important in, you know, in these times of, of budget cuts and so forth. I in our everyday life, we're interacting with analytics constantly from from your movie choices at Netflix to your book choices at Amazon, credit scores, even when you get the weather report. It's predictive analytics that that's using that data to help inform your choices. Um, and, and really the best one, make use of behavioral data. Well, in fundraising databases, really they have some of the richest behavioral data out there, giving histories, maybe activities, events, uh, board memberships in higher ed, there's student experiences, maybe there's patient experiences. I mean, the list goes on, ticketing and in the arts. And tapping that data is really no-brainer. But the challenge, I think, for most people is, yeah, we know we've got data, but we might not have confidence confidence in it. And really, the statistics seem so daunting to us. So I thought, I need to try to put a book together that's practical, it's fun, it doesn't have a scientific tone, and it's really a good entry point for someone who wants to explore, uh, maybe maybe for some how to do it, but for, for most, just how it applies and, and how it's relevant f- uh, for them. So the way it's different is it's really kind of going after some of, uh, if you think of what's in the contemporary dialogue nowadays, everything that I'm hearing in literature is about truth and authentic community, uh, from Stephen Levitt and, and causality, why, why are things the way they are, to, to someone like a Gary Vaynerchuk, that, that how can we to have that people-to-people approach like you mentioned during page one, and that really applies to our data. Who are our donors? Can we form better relationships with them? Um, They have expectations that we know them, and and in our data, I think there's a way we can deliver on those expectations. Absolutely, and and Joshua, one of the things that we've continuously uh, uh, pushed here on the nonprofit coach is to help nonprofits understand that uh, nine times out of ten, their next best prospect is probably already known to them or known to someone who is a contributor uh, to them. And one of the ways to find uh, that next big donor is by analyzing the data that they currently have and getting to know their current supporters even better. Talk to us a little bit uh, about um, data mining, uh, first of all, in terms of some of the basics that you believe every one of our listeners should be engaged in to their campaign strategy right now. You know, with data mining, first and foremost, it's pattern recognition. Uh, if you were to look it up on, say, Wikipedia or any source, you'll find pattern recognition in your databases. But what are those patterns we're trying to recognize? I'd say where where I would focus is where are we already succeeding? Uh, there's a Center on Positive Deviance, which I just love that title over at Tufts University, and I'm often quoting them because what they're focusing on is is the odd successes or the odd positive deviance. Of, and if you think about your best donors, they're actually uncommon. Most of your donors donors are uh, look more like your random population but there's a select few that are really special and they're special and unique just to you and what predictive analysts can do is look at those those bright spots or these positive deviants I just love that word and 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 really define them and find others that look like those the method of it uh, there's different statistical tools uh, using regression analysis different predictive models but essentially what it does is it takes a population that are that that you like and you want to find more of like maybe it's your major donors or your your best plan giving donors and looks at what are the characteristics in our database that distinguish them from a random population and I think that's an important consideration. The concept, whether you're going to get into statistics or really you just want to have some principles to apply at a smaller nonprofit, is think about what makes your major donors different from the rest of your um, population rather than just common things about them. Uh, I've worked with a lot of organizations that have put together their own sort of handmade ranking systems, and, and that's really a great exercise. But most of that is born out of observation, that I see major donors and these are the things I see. But what they've not often asked is, well, would I see these things if I looked at all of my donors, that this really defines a constituent of our organization, rather than are these the things that are different and unique about my major donors. Uh, with some of the statistics tools, e- even more effectively, you can look at thousands and thousands of records and ask for those uh, distinguishing characters, uh, characteristics of your data. 
but you know, on the data mining, it, it feels like there's such a barrier to entry point, and and maybe being a little bit on my soapbox, I somewhat uh, blame uh, statistics uh, pedagogy for that. Uh, being a music background person, initially before I went into nonprofit management, I think about the Suzuki method, which kind of everyone in most academic disciplines you think of theory and then practice, and they reversed and said, let's try practice and then theory, get the kids playing music, and then they learn the theory. I think statistics needed a Suzuki method as well, and that was one of my goals setting out on the data mining to have it be successful, um, accessible to people is that, you know, you can do this, let's get a mouse in your hand and build in a predictive model, and then that'll get you excited and, and engaged and want to learn the theory behind that. And I found that that's a much easier way of getting that in-house capacity at, at nonprofits that thought it was out of their reach. Yeah, absolutely. And and the, the key here for a lot of our, our listeners to keep in mind is that uh, typically it is viewed that if you have a mature fundraising program, in other words, you have a very active annual giving that is that is providing uh, good prospects into a major gift and plan giving program, uh, that you're going to be raising 80% of your money from 20% of your uh, donors or 90% of your money from 10% of your donors, uh, as many mature programs will find. Well, to get to that 10% or 20% is really what you're talking about here, isn't it? Yes. In finding where are those prospects that we can go after for larger gifts. Oh, that's so right on right on the nose. It's um, predictive modeling can't say this person will be your next donor or your next great donor, but what it can say is, you know what? Here's the 10% of your database where 90% of your major gifts are going to come from, and that brings so much efficiency. I and mean, we just think about the cost of going on a donor call with someone who's unlikely to ever be a prospect or, or for you, um, or or just the if you if you're fortunate enough to have a prospect research department, the inefficiency of looking at names that they're never going to pass forward. What predictive analytics can do is it can narrow that down and hone in on here's really where the, the potential for success is and this is where it's going to come from. And, and, the, and the reason it does that is because it's based on your own behaviors inside. If, if you're going on Amazon.com and you're trying to buy a book, it's going to say based on your other book preferences, basically your behaviors with Amazon. And it's the same thing in, in your own database. Um, the people that are great donors to you behave a certain way, and there's other people that behave that same way but are not yet big donors to you. On the very surface of it, we're just trying to find the people that that are behaving that way, and that's why there's tremendous power in that data. Um, but, but certainly, a lot of people think, you know, we're a smaller organization; we don't have a robust annual fund yet. Um, but still, the the concept of let's think about how our top donors are different from our, our base donors uh, is a, is a good starting point because that informs how you gather data about them as you build your program. But you're right; it's really that transition. How do we build this major gift program out of that base? And really, where a lot of the science in fundraising has been developing, I'd say, in the last decade has been that transitional prospect development. So we've built our base of support through good engagement activity, and we've built the mechanisms for doing major gift and planned gift work through moves management and what, what have you. But the transition from who from our base should we be paying attention to for the major giving has been a little bit um, uh, – dependent on screening historically, but now there's a lot of more tool sets to look at um, different behaviors, engagement, likelihoods, and all of those ways to bring more efficiency to that process and, and think about the whole system as, a, as a one integrated fundraising approach. Joshua, one of the things that I always uh, recommend that, uh, uh, and, and we have listeners of this show, we're, we're blessed to have uh, uh, groups from very large organizations to very small organizations, and we try to uh, provide very practical advice to everyone uh, who may be on this show. And for those who maybe do not have their own research team and maybe a one- or two-person shop and are looking for ways to be more efficient, this is part of the answer. Uh, in terms of being more efficient is actually learning how to let the data help you. Yes. Yes, most definitely. Uh, and uh, certainly there's vendors that supply this type of work. Um, and even with some uh, – you know, I've sat down with some fundraisers. In fact, one guy was uh, the Re Razor's Edge manager, and we spent two days together, and he was building some, some great regression models after after two days, and, and he still surprised me in some of the neat stuff that he does. Uh, this, we needed the statisticians and the PhD stats to really define the science for us and to build some software so that the rest of us can do some practical applications of it. Um, I, it's always going to be better if you've got a, a statistician or a, you know economist that's behind it. But I bet you can get 90% as good without having a, a degree in statistics. Of course, my stats professors hope. I hope hopefully he's not on the phone or he's going to be calling me shortly. Um, 
but I think that there's a lot of these tools that are very uh, accessible for us to kind of dive right on in. And at the very least, let's start paying attention to what people do, not just what people are. Whether we're a small place or a big place, um, we're doing, we're, we've got behaviors and interactions with our donors through our people-to-people and our um, organization to our, to our many people types of activities. There's things happening. There's people going to events. They're, they're responding in certain ways. They're giving in certain ways, different timing. There's different things people do, but a lot of times people just store what people are, their demographics, you know, maybe some statuses about them. But if we're starting to store what people do, that data is so informative about future behaviors. And even if we're a very small place, starting to pay attention to that engagement is really the first big step to storing some data that we can do some powerful analytics as our organization grows. And, you know, truth, truth be told, solid fundraising is probably the key to our organization growing. Yeah, and and Joshua, one of the things that I recommend that all of our listeners always have ready at the the go is um, their top 100 or top 200 uh, prospect list. And, of course, that gets built off from current donors, but when you start reaching beyond those that you know have wealth, you need to start utilizing tools that can help you identify wealth. And one of those uh, tools is electronic screening. And and I'm a big fan of electronic screening. And it it does cost some upfront dollars, uh, but I have yet to have a client that didn't have big payoff from electronic screening. Can you explain to our listeners uh, what that is? And they certainly can read more about it uh, in your book. But can you uh, uh, quickly, just so briefly, explain what is electronic screening and why would that help you get to a top 200 list? Most definitely. Well, the wealth in the United States, the majority of our wealth is private information, and, and we're all very glad that it is. There are a few assets and a few uh, indicators of wealth that are public information, things such as uh, uh, public company insider stock holdings, your real estate information, some private company if that's self-disclosed, some political giving, and so, and, and so forth. And there's uh, some electronic screening companies that basically compile this data so that if you send a list of names to them, they will basically take your list, with your address list, and run them against all of these different data sets to see where do your individuals match in terms of some indicators of wealth. Now, they can't get the full wealth picture, and really once you meet a person individually, you probably already already have a better sense than what screening can do, but it can look at your whole file and get at that question of that financial capacity to give at a much larger scale than if you were to look up names individually. It's tremendously helpful for filtering, for quantifying potential in the database to help in in some uh, of your scaling and staffing questions, but most importantly, it's helpful in that prospect identification process. If you think backwards, the first time you make a cold call with a donor, those questions that you're asking are probably getting at, you know, do I have some indication that they could give a large financial gift to me? Like, did you did you start this business? Uh, who's your financial advisor? There's questions that you're kind of getting at. You're looking at the car in the driveway. But other questions have to do with, do I think that I'll be successful cultivating this person based on, you know, their affinities for what we're raising money for, their connections, family connections, previous giving, any of those types of things. Well, prospect researchers are looking at data in a one-to-one basis, asking those same questions. Does this data help me find uh, a capacity or what I think this person could give, or does it inform that likelihood or propensity that they will give to us? Well, if we back that up before, filtering who we should be even researching and who to be paying attention to, traditionally we've used wealth screening, um, but I'd point out that the wealth screening only gets at one of those two questions. It informs the financial ability to give the major gift, but we were really struggling to find an area that could answer for a whole thousands of people that likelihood to give a major gift. And that's really where we've seen the biggest rise in fundraising analytics, the analytics in the fundraising world, is to answer that likelihood question for a mass of people with, when we don't yet know them, can we know them? <laughs> it's, a, it's a paradox, purposely so, um, that the predictive analytics can sit alongside of screening and say the, all right, wealth screening said they could give this amount the analytics told me that they're likely to give that amount to me or to my nonprofit. And I think that's really where we've seen a big rise. Certainly in the direct marketing, analytics has had um, uh, efficiencies on the mail side. But, but from what we're talking on how it helps major giving, I think it, it's, it's a very close um, cousin, dare I say, sibling with wealth screening. That's great. Joshua, I, I, I wanted to remind all of our listeners that they can dial into 347 347- 
324-3080. Press the number one to raise your hand on the switchboard to let me know that you would like to ask a question of our page two expert today, author of Fundraising Analytics, Joshua Burkholz. And uh, Joshua, we do have uh, our first caller who would like to uh, and is going to uh, uh, win a copy of your book, Fundraising Analytics. And caller, you're live here on the Nonprofit Coach. Go right ahead and introduce yourself and ask your question. Hi, Ted. Hi, Joshua. It's uh, Jeff calling from Canada. Uh, Joshua, I've got a question about planned giving. What do you think the best metric is for finding planned giving prospects? Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a good one. You know, every model I build is a different model, um, and what distinguishes a, a type of donor from one organization is going to be different for another, but I do see things that come up again and again. Now, if we were to, um, I'd say the old standbys, the stalwarts of planned giving prediction have been consistent giving and age, and those certainly do model well again and again, but what has really surprised me, at least in the last three, four years, and especially since the downturn, a, a resilient predictor for planned giving has really been that legacy concept. Uh, legacy might be something that private colleges pay a lot of attention to, like the legacy families. You know, there's uh, parents went to the school, the kids did, aunts and uncles and cousins. But even all nonprofits have some sort of legacy family connections. Like there's several people in this family or this core circle that are all donors here. What I found is when there's um, several family connections to a nonprofit, the probability of a planned gift coming from that social circle is extremely high. So when I've built planned gift models, I've made sure I've looked at that interaction and the relationship between donors. So I found that interaction, so several other family members to be high. I'd say in the um, in the last five, ten years specifically on bequests, I've also happened to see um, people working in the education and government sector to do well. Um, I'm not getting into the why. I'm just observing that they are. It seems to be somewhat related to um, having better IRA plans and better retirements than, than livable income, and uh, it's a population that's more accustomed to a set livable income. That's one theory I've heard. I, I'm not getting into the theory, but I have observed um, uh, that sometimes working in the education or government sector is related. So if I, if I were to put a model together, I'd be, be sure that I'm looking at some sectors of work. I'd be looking at um, their consistent giving patterns, so that they're very level um, and, and regular, I'd be looking at their age, and I'd also certainly be looking at multiple family connections. Those are good starting points, but uh, as I said, I'll see lots of different variables for lots of different uh, clients and models that I've built. I hope that was helpful. Is that is that on track, Jeff? It is. It was great. Thank you. Yeah, and Jeff, thank you so much for calling in. You've now just won a uh, copy of Fundraising Analytics uh, provided to the show today by John Wiley and Sons. I just need to ask you to please email us at tedhart.com at tedhart.com with the phone number that you dialed in from, uh, and uh, we'll have that book right off to you. Thank you so much for calling in today. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jeff. So, Jeff, uh, coming back to, uh, again, this wonderful book, and, and one of the things that I wanted the listeners, uh, uh, Jeff uh, just uh, won a copy of this book, and for, uh, for others who may be interested, of course, the book is available uh, on Amazon.com. Uh, it's available at the AFP uh, bookstore, and it's uh, available at uh, Wiley.com. Uh, but uh, when you read through this book, it's such an easy uh, to read book in terms of from a fundraiser's perspective, not just from uh, a data techie uh, perspective. Um, and I think one of the, the things that's on the minds of a lot of our listeners, and certainly for most fundraisers, is um, prospect management. Um, what kind of information should a fundraiser be looking for in terms of managing their prospects and moving them towards the ask? Yeah, that's a great question, um, and, and I'm often asked if that perhaps our organization can't put a full moves management, a whole system together, where do we start and, and, and where do you start? And, and to answer all, all of those, where I start and what I think is the most critical in terms of information is to start with targeting. How much am I going to ask for and when and for what project? It seems simple and straightforward, but so infrequently do I actually see that information stored. So I've met this new person, and they're a prospect for such and such project in my campaign. Maybe it's for the cancer center. Well, I want to ask them for a $25,000 gift next July. Um, starting with that, then I can work backwards. And, and that, uh, that cultivation strategy, um, really I, I, I think there's a, a subtle language that I hear from the 
top fundraisers that I don't hear from the more junior fundraisers. It comes to, let's say you get this new prospect, maybe it's from a prospect researcher or from screening, and it looks like this person could give, let's say, a million dollars, a great, uh, very high net worth uh, type of donor. And I'd say junior fundraisers will often start with, you know, what what, what do we think we could get from this person? Um, maybe I can get a $50,000 lead gift for this campaign and XYZ. But when I talk to some of the most seasoned fundraisers, I almost always hear that cultivation strategy start with, well, what would it take for our organization to get that million-dollar gift? Uh, and I'll, maybe that means that all the stars need to be aligned. Well, what are those stars? How do we start aligning them? If we're going to ask for a million-dollar gift 18 months from now, what would we have to do as an organization to have a quality, substantial, one-on-one -on -one relationship with this person uh, to, in order to make that happen? Once that qualitative approach and strategy is set, then prospect management is simply tracking and making sure that we're on track with the strategy we set out. But the, the thing that's often missing is you might see brilliant strategies and staff around your annual fund and, and all these um, thoughts about some letter and how that letter is going to look. And we've, for a lot of organizations, you probably have 25, 50, sometimes even 100 donors that I would say could single-handedly outgive the annual fund. And are we putting the same level of strategic attention to each one of those individual relationships? Um, and so really regardless of the, the data, the stats, what we store on our, our systems, our database systems, um, having a, a clear picture on, uh, on those 50 to 100 people on what those relationships and what needs to happen, having a great strategy, we're going to be successful. Um, so from a tracking perspective, start with targeting, having some dates, and then work backwards, stages to get there, um, making sure you're keeping track of those contacts. And, that, and then you work together as a community with the operations staff who can be very effective and helpful to you if you communicate with them. Um, that's really well, where you, I would start. You just brought up such an, uh, an important topic. I just did a, a full-day uh, training on Saturday in Dallas, and this topic came up in terms of and, – and it seems to always come up when, when an organization is talking about special events um, because it always seems like, you know, let's throw a party and we'll raise lots of money. And I made the exact same case, and that is wh how much time do you have for staff and volunteers and what is the best way – uh, to utilize and deploy those resources. And uh, it, it wasn't meant to be an anti-special event uh, comment, right. but it was to say that we need things to be in balance. And if yes. we're taking away precious resources uh, from major gift fundraising activities to put them towards special events, we may not get the payoff. Mm -hmm. I think that's exactly right. Doing good special events, doing strong annual giving work requires a lot of work. Building strong relationships, even if we're relationship people, also requires a lot of work. And a lot of times we lean on our ability to make relationships but aren't thinking about the, the work that also goes in to being strategic, planning, making sure that we're aligning the right gift officer with the right prospect, that we're making sure people aren't slipping through the cracks. And if truly people want truthful, authentic community and one-to-one and -one interaction, um, We'd all intend to do that with everybody, but scale-wise, we can't maintain that with everybody. So we have to be selective and, and perhaps non-democratic in, in choosing some people to really have some solid individual relationships with. But having that uh, strategies and balance, I couldn't agree more. I was very well said. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Joshua, we're going to take just a little bit of a break because we've got uh, uh, something to, uh, to give away here. Uh, when we come back from that break, I'm going to ask you the big question, uh, and that is to help our listeners understand what is an integrated prospecting system. So we'll be right back here with Joshua Burkholz uh, right after the break. <laughs> Here on the break, uh, as we have been for uh, the last month or so, uh, providing support to the GreenNonprofits.org organization. So you can go to GreenNonprofits.org, and that organization is all about helping your organization become more green. One of the projects that they have is to help your organization become a certified green nonprofit organization. You can sign up for their free newsletter at GreenNonprofits.org, and one of the promotions is to give away a free copy of the book, The Nonprofit Guide to Going Green. All the instructions on how you can enter the weekly drawing are available in the newsletter at greennonprofits.org. And this week's winner is 
Susan Plath. Susan Plath is with the Billings Public Schools in Billings, Montana, and Susan is this week's winner of the nonprofit coach with by uh, the nonprofit coach's uh, promotion of uh, the nonprofit guide to going green. So make sure that you enter for next week's drawing of the green nonprofit's promotion of the nonprofit guide to going green. Let's head back to page one, page two of the nonprofit guide. So, Joshua, I'm, uh, I'm so pleased that uh, Susan has won a copy uh, uh, of that book, and uh, Jeff won a copy of your book. So, lots of people winning things here on the Nonprofit Coach today. So, let's make everybody a winner uh, by uh, helping them understand what is an integrated prospecting system, and I guess more importantly, why is it important? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. I've worked with so many organizations, and I've asked people, you know, what do you do? And they'll, and they'll be quick to say, you know, I'm a prospect researcher, or I'm an annual gift officer, or I, you know, I'm a frontline fundraiser, I'm in operations, so forth. Um, but rarely do I hear a, a kind of an overarching approach to how does our organization raise money. In fact, even when I ask that question, how do you as an organization raise money, um, most people can speak eloquently about their specific role, but not how that integrated system works. And if I was to uh, speak specifically about prospecting, I would think about the two ends of prospecting. We talked about that base development, that annual giving, the events, all the ways that we teach people how to be our constituents. We, we build that participation, the engagement, the loyalty. Um, and that's such an important part of who we are. And then our major gift work in the macro sense where we're meeting individually to maximize philanthropic potential. Well, the transition between those two is really this whole prospect development world. And it tends to, an integrated system tends to have a uh, probably three main phases. Uh, first being uh, ways by which we filter from that base those names likely and possible to be major donors to us. Um, and that filtering is, tends to be um, broader, almost resembling market research activities, the screening we talked about, uh, the predictive modeling, the fundraising analytics. Those things exist to make it more efficient for the next stage, which would be to, to qualify those names. Looking on data, almost like a baseball scout preparing the scouting report, who should we be seen asking those questions, yes, or no, making judgments about we think this is a great name for our institution, all feeding into the person who's going to make contact through their discovery process. Um, generally, that's a gift officer. Certainly, there's been some programs where they're using students or dedicated discovery officers and so forth, but going on making those cold calls. And really, that first visit is still part of this prospecting process. You've not decided yet to cultivate them until probably the second visit. You're still asking those questions of capacity and propensity. And the reason why I stress the concept of the integration is most of us start our moves management process at the cultivation cycle. But all of these stages before, doing that discovery work, the pre-qualification, and doing that filtering, and most importantly, building that loyalty through our base development, are all ways that we make the next stage more efficient and, and ensure success for the major giving program. We can't have a strong major giving program without good base development. We can't have a strong major giving program without a good way of identifying those prospects, qualifying those, and feeding them into the pipeline. Um, so the integrated system has those different stages, but it also is a monitor and a check to make sure that people are moving through those, asking the questions, are we seeing the best prospects, and making sure that those portfolios are, are optimized. I might even think like a stock portfolio. Do we have the right mix and the right prospects for this gift officer to maximize their yield and fundraising? Should we have some long shots that have high capacity but low likelihood? Should we have some, you know, kind of our medium growth stock? These are prospects that love us, but they maybe don't have as much financial capacity. But what's the optimum balance, and can we align the right people with the right projects, make sure they're on track, and have a system where everyone's working working together where those relationships aren't only between the gift officer and the prospect, but between the staff within the fundraising organization. So I, I don't know if I made the case well, but um, the best nonprofits have seamless prospect management, and, and those that don't uh, generally are aspiring to build up their prospect management and have a, a more integrated approach to prospect development. Exactly, and it's so important to give thought to this, and, and we certainly urge all of our uh, listeners to make uh, a prospect data analysis a priority for this year. Now, think in terms of uh, your clients and maybe some of the, the smaller uh, clients that you've had, maybe one or two-person shop, uh, small organization that wants to succeed in major gifts. When they're looking at their database, wherever that database may be, 
what's what the first couple of steps that you would recommend that they could actually accomplish this year that would help advance their cause of moving towards more major gift support? You know, where I would start, when you're a small organization, I would start with paying attention to who knows who, um, the, the interconnection between our small population. The upside of a small database is it's still within your reach to actually know a lot of your constituents. Um, and that's a luxury that very large organizations wish they had, and they depend on t- tools like analytics to be able to do that. But if you're a small organization, you've got the benefit of knowing the interconnected relationships between people. Who's sitting by who at which table? Um, starting to go to these different events. Starting to gather that data for um, I stress how people behave with your organization and, and, and really learning about, okay, here's our, some of our top donors and this is how they're different than the others. Uh, it's certainly, if you're a small organization, you're going to have to leverage volunteers more. So and maybe your integrated prospecting system is making sure you have re- regular contact with your volunteers to, to meet um, their friends and to interact with their communities. Learning about those social networks uh, within your organization, I think that's just a, it's a critical area. Those social networks are, are I think, some of the untapped data and really largely unstored data because it, it got, kind of got away from us for most large nonprofits. Well, small, small nonprofit, it's still within their reach to gather that interconnected data. Um, so uh, leveraging the volunteers, gathering how people are related to each other, um, and maintaining that commitment to building your brand, even though you want to do major gift work, try to keep that in balance that you're building your brand and you're building your, your base of support through your annual giving and events and that type of work so that you can really have a sustainable major gift program in the future. Josh, we have a, an email question uh, from uh, Donna uh, in Atlanta, and she's asking, uh, what what comes first, the project or the prospect? <laughs> oh, that, it depends on the dollar amount, right? No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, sometimes you'll have some donors that, uh, that their, their financial ability can be transformative in, uh, to your institution. That gets into a whole other debate that certainly outlasts this, this call. I would certainly start and maybe this might be counter to me who's 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 generally considered pretty donor focused but it probably is the project first and foremost but the the uh, but it's a it's a tough answer to the question because your organization exists for a very specific mission and that mission's important or none of you would be working for that and and a great prospecting approach is going to find the prospects that also share that affinity of purpose. Um, so within some limits, you don't want the projects to get out of sight of your own mission. So in that regard, the project does certainly come come first. But if, if you're keeping your prospects first, you're finding those prospects that also share that affinity. So it's truly a win-win, and, and hopefully the question doesn't even have to come up because we're focused on people that have a strong affinity and passion, the same passion that we have that we're working. I mean, we could probably all make more money on Wall Street, and then we We'd be on Wall Street, but but we care passionately about what we do, and there's prospects out there that care passionately about what we do. And if if that project is an important project and it aligns with our mission, your prospects that also care about your mission are going to be right on board with you. Um, so in that regards, project does come first. But I certainly, in terms of the attention with that prospect. Um, it's almost like customer service where the customer is always right. Um, within within some boundaries, I'm a big advocate that, yeah, entertain their notions. Give them a voice. Um, but the, the challenge with that is it used to be designation and voice and choice belonged only to the very big donors. But with social media and the opportunity to voice your opinion from the very small to the very large, even a $25 donor feels that they um, have a voice and they have some choices and designations. So I think that's going to be one of the biggest hurdles looking forward down the road for nonprofits is how do we maintain that level of choice and designation that the very top donors have, have had um, with very small donors that have those same expectations. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because that is such an important part of what I think is changing uh, in philanthropy today, and that is uh, not not only the opportunity but the demand that a lot of donors have to have more say in their own philanthropy, and the Internet gives them so many different ways uh, to do that. Uh, Josh, uh, you have done an outstanding job today, not only in uh, sharing with us your book, Fundraising Analytics, but in helping our listeners understand uh, that this doesn't have to be the boogeyman, this doesn't have to be difficult to understand, uh, but it is something that everybody needs to start working with if they don't already have it. 
as part of their fundraising plan. We're almost out of time today, so I'm going to ask you to uh, uh, just wrap up with any final thoughts uh, that you have regarding this book, uh, and then we're going to wrap it up until next week uh, where uh, we will be back here uh, on the Nonprofit Coach on Tuesday of next week. So, Josh, uh, any final thoughts for today? Well, thank you so much, Ted, for having me on. I, I just I appreciate that, and I wouldn't be here if I didn't firmly believe in, in this. The science really works. It's going to bring efficiency to your program. You're going to be more effective for having paying attention to your donors, and the data gives them another voice to communicate with you. So if you think about it in that context, I'm listening to my donors, and this new language I've just learned is the data in my database. You will be successful, and I wish that success for all of you. That's great. And, Josh, you're going to love next week's show. Uh, we'll have Steve McLaughlin from Blackbaud, who's going to be here presenting the Blackbaud 2010 online giving report. Lots of very important information for our listeners. This week I will be in Albuquerque, New Mexico, working with charities there. And then I'll be right back here on the Nonprofit Coach next Tuesday uh, with Steve McLaughlin as H expert. Thank you everyone for joining us today. Josh, thank you for joining us here on The Nonprofit Coach and we'll catch you next week. You can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.